Well, good morning, friends. Uh, I'm Dave Hackett, and privileged to be able to speak with you today. I'm just back one week from Egypt, so I've got some things to, to say uh, that have been refreshed by being in that, that land. And, uh, but first, let's hear from the Word of God. Two sections, one from uh, 2 Corinthians and the second from Acts. So listen, if you would, as if these were said to us, you know, this week, that they were meant for events this week, describing things that were happening this week. So first from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, from the message. Paul writes, Our firm decision is to work from this focused center. One man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. That old life is gone. A new life emerges. Look at it. All this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him, and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How, you ask? In Christ. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. From 2 Corinthians. Now from Acts. And this is a, a story that's in process. The um, uh, apostles have, have been um, jailed for preaching. And the story takes part in, in this. So here it is. Then the high priest took action. He and all who were with him, that is the sect of the Sadducees, being filled with jealousy, arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and tell the people the whole message about this life. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and went on with their preaching. When the high priest and those with him arrived, they called together the council and the whole body of the elders of Israel, and they sent word to the prison to have them brought. But when the temple police went there, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were perplexed about them, wondering what might be going on. Then someone arrived and announced, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the temple police and brought them, but without violence, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, 
They had them stand before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles said, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up and ordered the men to be put outside for a short time. And he said to them, Fellow Israelites, Consider carefully what you propose to do to these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and disappeared. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up at the time of the census, and he got people to follow him. He also perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, because if this plan or this undertaking is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. In that case, you may even be found fighting against God. And so they were convinced by him, and when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. What dogged, <laughs> dogged evangelists they are. Let's uh, have a word of prayer before we begin. Lord, thank you for these scriptures that tell us a very dynamic story and of committed disciples, totally sold, belonging to you, redeemed, and persistent. Thank you for what it is to be a disciple when um, those around us are not in favor of, of us doing that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this story, this Acts story, is a um, story of a small band of men and women Believers, new believers, really, actually, in Jesus Christ, following after him and after the way. And they dared to grow this fledgling church when all around them followed a majority religion that was hostile to Christianity. And in spite of this cultural antagonism, they became disciples and they sought to grow this community of those who followed Jesus. The Acts passage makes a point that they rejoiced when they, that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And then every day in the temple and at home, they didn't cease to teach and proclaim Jesus. Well, just coming back from the Middle East, I want to be telling you today about the witness of Christians in the Middle East and North Africa and of the work that I do in international ministry because, well, I want to tell you that much of what this Acts passage is describing is happening this week, these days. 
You know, we take the existence of the church, our ability here to gather on Zoom or here uh, for granted. But in many parts of the world, the church does not even exist in an indigenous church. And there is no indigenous church for whole nations, entire people groups. And this is particularly true in the Middle East. And I'm, I'm reminded, Linda, as you read to us from Philippians, Philippians and these epistles were written to new fledgling churches, you know, and we receive them as an established church, but they have that spirit of being to groups that are on the frontier of faith. So let's keep that in mind. So the scriptures we've looked at describe this drive of the early church to take the gospel to those who didn't know the message of Christ's redemption. They wanted to share the gospel and to bring people to faith in Jesus, even though it was not legal to do so. And the majority religion in, in this uh, Acts case, Jewish religion, did not allow them to share their faith. And that's why they kept being brought back and told not to say anything. This kind of environment is what drives Vision Synergy, my organization, as well, to equip the church to reach people who have no witness of Christ. We exist so that there can be breakthroughs, that the Lord's Spirit can give these breakthroughs in sharing the gospel among the frontiers of faith, where cultures and religions are actively preventing people from becoming followers of Christ. To make those breakthroughs, we believe that God calls us to band together in collaborative ministry and mission. The task, we think, is too huge to even think that we can do it by one church, by a whole collection of churches, or by our own organization, or even our whole denomination. Too large. Too large for one missionary. Too large for 10 missionaries. So we pull inspiration in this from the Bible in passages such as 2 Corinthians 1, where it urges us to drop our differences and enter into God's work together. So first I'm going to describe the challenges that are before the global church in this region, and I'm going to focus on the Middle East and North Africa because that's the focus of my ministry. I'm senior director for the Middle East and North Africa for Vision Synergy. And here are some of the challenges of sharing the Christian faith in the Middle East and North Africa. Now for the sake of just helping you grasp the uh, situation, I'd say that there are four levels of the state of Christianity among the nations in this region. So level one, just try to picture four levels. Level one, and we're gonna call this the first fruits level. And these are where there are just perhaps handfuls of people from the local people, the local population, the indigenous group. Just handfuls of believers among the people of the land. And this is the case in most of the countries of the Arabian Peninsula. Kuwait, Oman, the Emirates, Bahrain, and Qatar. The same is true in some of the countries of North Africa, such as Libya and Mauritania. And these first fruit believers are all underground believers. They are in secret. They're doing their own discipleship or with a small fellowship. But think of the privilege of being able to meet some of the very first believers in a people group. And I get that privilege to be able to meet those who are the very first fruits 
of the witness of the gospel in their culture. Indigenous churches in many of the Arab countries are still in the earliest stages of developing an indigenous church, if even near that at all. And by an indigenous church, I mean one that is in their own language, makes sense within their own culture, represents the gospel in a way that is good news to them, and not coming across as a foreign religion imported from the West, but truly is the gospel for them. And it connects well with the best of their culture. So that's level one, just first fruits, handfuls. Level two, I'd call an infancy level. There may be a few hundreds of indigenous Christians at this level, and this is the case uh, in Yemen and in Saudi Arabia, just a few hundred believers across the whole nation. The church is not organized, really, or connected, or even formed. It's scattered, it's underground, and it's growing, and it's growing. And it may have remarkable people, uh, like um, apostles, who travel among these various small units of believers and encourage them, or maybe do baptisms and some of these things, and it's not even a church yet. That's level two, infancy. Level three, this is where there's been a definite breakthrough of an indigenous church, and the church in some form, multiple congregations, and not just, I'm not talking denominations here, I'm just talking churches, exist. But they're struggling and often persecuted by authorities and by the common person, and especially relatives of believers. There are established indigenous Christian communities in um, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Iraq, Iran. And then uh, level four. This level is where the church may be quite sizable, but still persecuted. Perhaps 10 to even 30% of the population may be believers, Christians. It is implanted in the culture, but it's still restrained by Islam, the religion of Muslims. Remember that the Christian faith started in the Middle East, so it's not a Western religion. It's there. And so for several of the countries in the region, they have a long historic Christian presence, even going clear back to New Testament times, just straight on through, and it's been there. And this is the case in um, the countries of uh, Egypt and Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, continuous from New Testament times. But oddly, these are indigenous Christians who have been in that, that heritage ruled over by Muslims, a Muslim government, Muslim culture. They often have a very hard time accepting even the thought of any Muslims converting to Christianity. See, so there's a very big gulf between those whose families have been Christians for generations and any new Muslims who might choose to become Christians. In fact, these Christian background believers, as they're called, they have learned through experience to lie low. Don't muddy the water. You know, don't cause waves. Be very passive. You know, no evangelism or very slight evangelism. No mixing. All of these kinds of things. That, that is a huge problem right now in the Middle East where those Christian background believers are not receiving into their Christian fellowships any, any Muslims who come to faith in Christ. 
So when Muslim governments declare that Muslims must not become Christians, then most of the Christians of long standing in these countries will push out any Muslim convert coming to them. Now, I want to make it clear that it's broadly illegal for people, not only foreigners, but nationals, to share their faith in almost any country across the Arab world. It's just not legal. But like the passage in Acts, those who have discovered faith in Christ feel compelled to share it with their neighbors, even if it's not legal. As Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And in so in countries with just a handful of Christians, their existence is very similar to descriptions in the New Testament, in Acts, like we read, with dreams of angels calling people to faith in Jesus. They may face extreme hostility by authorities, be jailed, yelled at, told never to do that again, and flogged and sent out. That's today's experience in many of the Arab countries of indigenous believers. And I'm fascinated and humbled to be able to work hand in hand with those who are discipling the very first believers in these countries. I want to note that the spiritual world that I encounter in the Middle East, where the church is not present, it also feels many times like a passage from Acts with that early church there, with healings, sudden instantaneous healings of physical ailments when people pray to Jesus, where believers furtively gather now with high-tech video monitors outside their house to have somebody watching. There would be somebody with a bank of of video monitors outside here watching to see if any authorities were converging on our house so that we could escape. I mean, that's today's reality right now in some of those countries. It's also where we see Christians having to cast out demons attacking people and to stand up face to face with the spiritual power of what the Arabic speaking world calls jinn, you know, spirits from the dark world. And we get the word genie. I mean, we have a very friendly thought of the word genie, but it's jinn, and these are devils and demons. My family knew an American medical mission worker in Oman who was teaching a class of new nurses, Omani nurses, and one day suddenly the whole um, group just shrieked because to them on the wall there was appearing a cat kind of growing out of the wall, and they all cried out in terrible fear that they were being attacked by a jinn and they ran out. I mean, this, these are things that happen today. Several countries have certain regions famous for being inhabited by jinn. And I know of mission workers today who have to assert spiritual power over jinn and demons in the Arabian Peninsula, for instance. And these are often called power encounters. I know this all sounds quite, may sound quite strange to you, but these kinds of things are more common than not, where the church is not, where the church is not. Also common, however, are dreams and visions pulling Muslims to faith in Jesus. This week, I learned this ministry, shared this story from uh, this past month from a Muslim man who came to faith in Christ in Egypt. He wrote to say, I was a Muslim and I loved Islam. 
I prayed that Allah would help me in my very difficult problem. I didn't get any help. I didn't get any answer. I talked through your social media with a former Muslim who told me that Jesus had helped him even in a greater and a bigger problem than I had because he had converted to the Christian faith. And he prayed for help. I didn't believe him. And after that discussion, I saw a dream. And in that dream, I heard these words, pray to Jesus, he will help you. And when I woke up, I immediately prayed to Jesus and God really answered my prayer. Because of this event, I started to search and I read more about Jesus and eventually I surrendered my life to Jesus. That's also a story from just now. So let's just notice the, the elements mentioned in this, this man's story. First, there was media, in particular uh, social media which somehow, you know, this was the means by which this man got to be able to talk with someone about faith in Jesus. And secondly, this man mentions the gospel. The person told him about Jesus and about his own experience. So there's the preaching of the gospel. And thirdly, his story talks about this incredible power of prayer. And this is certainly true today. He heard these words, pray to Jesus, and, and that opened it up for him. And fourthly, it tells about leading people to salvation, all in this one convert's story. So we've got media, the gospel, the power prayer, personal faith in Jesus Christ. And all of that actually is because Christians are working together. It's not just by accident that there was social media that uh, had been put up and was available. It somehow got down to the level of that Muslim man who was asking some spiritual questions in his life. That was all powered by Christian networks, not just one effort. And this is where collaboration comes in, building networks to grow this kind of outreach. And my work specifically is to help groups of Christians from different churches, different denominations and ministries to form networks together so that they can tackle challenges that would be impossible for them to do on their own. And this involves teaching, for me, teaching on collaboration, training network leaders, advising uh, the forming and running of networks in the Middle East and North Africa, and troubleshooting all the problems that come along the way. I advise any number of networks and partnerships throughout the Middle East and North Africa, some of them huge, and I help them to operate well. In particular, uh, my colleagues and I teach people how to lead a network that is formed of many different organizations. That's quite different from leading an organization. For one thing, in a network, all the participants are volunteers. You know, they can leave at will. Uh, so we need to have a special environment that, that empowers them, brings them together, sustains it. Some of the networks that I work with have over 700 different companies and churches and organizations in them. Others have about 20 or 30 different mission agencies or churches who are trying to make disciples and plant the church in an entire country. Others are working on specific approaches. These are networks that are working on different approaches, such as working with refugees or working with battered women, whole networks that are uniting together to try to address these major things. For instance, in uh, one country, the Arabian Peninsula, the government doesn't want to admit that there's any, um, you know, any abuse of women 
that would dishonor the government. But they know that it's happening. And so actually they're welcoming this band of organizations that are working together to try to address these problems of uh, abused women and children in that country. And uh, it's a way forward. It's a way forward. But we keep thinking about how God calls us to discover the power of working together. As 2 Corinthians says, God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We're Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. We are speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. That's from 2 Corinthians. And that's what these Christian Arabs are doing in the Middle East and North Africa. They're boldly sharing the gospel as they're able. They're overcoming their differences, dropping them, and sometimes that's very hard to do. Right now in Egypt, uh, just this past week, we're working to help Egyptian Christians form new national networks in several areas that they have said are important to them to have this kind of collaboration, particularly in ministries to children, to youth and women, to develop pastors and leaders, to develop discipleship programs, to develop joint community development, to launch new mission enterprises, and to gain fluency in using media for ministry. Two weeks ago, I was leading a training time where 50 of the senior leaders of the top 40 Christian ministries in Egypt were called together to a conference retreat, two-day retreat that I led and with my two Egyptian colleagues. We taught them about how to lead a network, uh, what collaboration is and isn't, how they cannot lead a network like they would lead their own organization. We keep being surprised because we learn that so many of them have had, this is their first experience of learning about collaboration. It's all deeply rooted in a solo ministry, solo leaders, very hierarchical, we only work within our own group kind of mentality. So this is new information for them. And we believe it's biblical. So that's the point that I would have us all think on from this passage from 2 Corinthians. We are Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and enter into God's work of making things right between them. So I'd ask you, how might you find your own opportunities to drop your differences, to work with God, to show love, and join with others. Uh, you might start right in your own family or your work or school. It might be working on a cause together. It might be going to Campbell Farm. <laughs> but um, in whatever place, we are Christ's representatives. Let's represent. And that's the charge for us today. Let's pray. Gracious God, Thank you for your spirit, which empowers these uh, incredible levels of ministry and people who are in them in the Middle East, but also in our own lives. As you draw us together, as we are in this 
this fellowship here today. You draw us together to equip and prepare us and develop our heart for the world around us. So, Lord, help us to be adequate, empowered ambassadors, representatives for Christ. In your Son's name, amen.